let's turn to Jonah. Jonah, we have been uh, talking about this series coming up for a few weeks now. And Jonah is a small book towards the back of the Old Testament. It's kind of tough to find. Uh, Jonah is followed by uh, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. They're all small books. If you struggle to find it, most of your Bibles have a table of contents in the beginning. And it will tell you where books are and what page number it's on. For me, Jonah is page 943. I don't know what page it is for you, but that's what it is for me. So this is a, a not a large book, but we'll spend uh, eight weeks in this book. So we'll spend three weeks in chapter one. We'll spend a week in chapter two, and then two weeks chapter three, two weeks chapter four, and we'll walk through the book of Jonah. So I am excited about it, to say the least. Jonah chapter one. We're going to read the first three verses this morning. I hope that you have uh, found it by now. At least you're, you're getting there, getting close to it. If, uh, if you can't find it, just keep, keep trying. You'll find it. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Those four books are together. So Jonah 1, and let's look in verse number 1. Maybe even earmark that so in weeks to come you can get to it easier. And we'll read the first three verses. Here's what Jonah 1 starts with. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it, and to go with him unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer and a song, and we'll dive into the first few verses of Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, when it, uh, when it comes to the book of Jonah, I would say this, get ready for a new experience. Uh, the book of Jonah is an extremely unique book of the Bible, and it's a prophetic book, but most prophetic books focus on the message of the prophet. Uh, this is a unique book in that it focuses on the prophet himself, and the book tells a story, and it tells the story of Jonah, and the unique thing about this prophet is that he's not shaded in a positive light as most prophets are. Jonah is a man who is not the hero. Jonah is a man who has some deep character flaws. And this book is really unique in that it doesn't, it doesn't give us many straightforward ethical teachings. Uh, if you think about books of the Bible, many times you could quote a verse from them. Jonah is a book that's it's not really very quotable. You don't find these verses that are just these little nuggets that, that kind of punch you in the face. They're, it's this book that it has a storyline and you have to kind of draw your own conclusions, it even has some rhetorical questions that you don't even get the answers to. You just have to kind of fill in the gaps for yourself. And if you think about the book of Jonah, I mean, try to, in your mind right now, think of a verse from Jonah that you could quote. You'd probably be hard-pressed. And that's, that's unique because most, you know, most books, even books that you're not real familiar with, you know, Habakkuk, you could quote maybe, the just shall live by faith. Or Micah, you could quote that God will open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. But you, it's really tough with Jonah because it's a different style. It's, it's a very unique book. And the book of Jonah tells a story, and the story is filled with, with irony and with these character reversals and with humor at times. And it, it really has been a treat for me to study it for some time, and I think that we're going to enjoy going through it. Herman Melville, in his book Moby Dick, he referenced the book of Jonah, and this is what he said about it. He said, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of scriptures. Yet, what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us, this prophet. 
What's Melville saying? Melville is saying this is a short story. It's, it's a mere 48 verses, but it oozes with application and with truth and with lessons that we can draw from it. And for many, if you grew up in Sunday school or coming to church as a children, you know the story of Jonah, but it maybe it was simply just this, this lesson from the schoolhouse of obedience. You know, run from God, beware, a fish will come swallow you. Which is a valid application. It's a valid lesson from Jonah, but it's so much deeper than that. It's so much grander than that. I liken this book to a kaleidoscope. Uh, if you ever played with one of those as a kid, you kind of look down the kaleidoscope and you twist it, and at the end are these colorful kind of configurations that appear, and as you twist and, and shake it, it begins to kind of mesmerize you and change it. And Jonah is a book that, as I, for the past man, weeks and months have peered into it. It seems like every time I twist it and every time I read it again, it changes and there's something new and beautiful that just kind of jumps off of the pages. And I'm excited that for the next eight weeks, we're going to get to peer into the book together and, and learn the lessons from Jonah. And I want to start this morning by just laying a foundation for this book in the first three, three verses and to understand what's happening in the story. Because if you miss the, the intro and you miss what's happening, even historically, then you completely miss some valid lessons towards the end of the book. So I just want to start simply in verse number one with the man, with Jonah himself, the man. And we'll learn this lesson from Jonah. God uses messed up people for his glory. The Bible says in verse number one, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, I won't spend long here, but I, I need to lay a five-minute uh, kind of historical lesson so that you can know what's happening historically here. The Jewish people have a long, detailed history, but it kind of begins to culminate in the reigns of a Saul, then turns to David, then turns to Solomon, and that's around 1,000 B.C. And they're unified. The 12 tribes are together. They have their land. Everything's going well. And then Rehoboam takes over for Solomon in 930 B.C., and the unification begins to split. And they actually divide up into two separate nations. They divide up in the south is a nation comprised of two tribes of Israel. They call themselves Judah. Jerusalem is their capital, and they're there. They have their own kings, uh, and those kings are kind of a mixed bag. Some are good, some are bad. Then you have the north, and the north, they call themselves Israel. Ten tribes, and they have a different capital city, Samaria. They have a different king sitting on the throne, and those kings are all evil. One right after the other, they're, they're all evil. And that's important because Jonah's a man who lives in the north and he prophesies in the north. And we don't have many biblical prophets that fit that mold. So Jonah is a man, and we know this because Jonah is referenced in the Old Testament one time outside of the book of Jonah. Jonah is referenced in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14, and we'll put it on the screen for you. This is what 2 Kings 14 says, and it helps us to know who Jonah is, when he lives, those sorts of things. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. So this says, look, there's this, uh, there's this king in Judah down here. There's this king in the north up here, and Jeroboam is up in the north. He's actually Jeroboam II is who this is. And he reigned 40 and one years. Verse 24, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who was Jeroboam the first, who made Israel to sin. Verse 25, and Jeroboam II, king of the north, said he restored the coast of Israel from entering uh, of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. So here you find kind of our, our, 
our time frame, we find the slice of history that Jonah fits into, that he had prophesied to an evil king that God's going to bless you. And God's actually going to give you some land back that you've lost. And at this point in time, this nation, Israel in the north, was being taxed by and kind of ruled by Assyria. Assyria is their bitter enemy, and that's important because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and we're going to talk a lot about Nineveh through this series. So Assyria is ruling them, but Assyria begins to lose its grip a little bit, and Jonah had prophesied, God's going to bless, you're going to take back the land, we're going to have this surge of independency come, and we're going to uh, get our independency back from Assyria, and that does happen. And they, and God blesses them despite their, their wickedness. And you see that Jonah is, is a guy in this time frame. Then when he prophesies and the word of the Lord comes to him, here's the historical setting. He's in the north. They've been conquered by Assyria for some time, but, it, but Assyria has begun to wane a little bit and lose power. And that superpower uh, has lost its grip to a degree. And that is when this happens in Jonah 1.1. That the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he tells him, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, we don't see the character flaws in Jonah yet, but I can tell you up front what we're going to see is a man who is a piece of work. <laughs> he, has, he has issues. He has deep issues. He is a guy that all throughout the book, there's this irony that here's a man of God that acts nothing like a man of God should. He's a man who is nasty, He's mean, he's selfish, many times he's sullen and he pouts, he's proud, he's angry, he's rebellious. Jonah's name actually means dove, but he acts like a crow. <laughs> Jonah is a man who is just, he is messed up, honestly, all through the book. And straight away we're encouraged that the word of the Lord comes to this man. And God wants to use this man who's fragile and mean and downright toxic at times. And God comes to him and says, I want to use you. And God could have evangelized Nineveh with angels if he wanted to. But he doesn't want to. He wants to use Jonah and he desires to use this human man to go share his good news with Nineveh. And this is, there's a correlation to us immediately because we find that we are people, Christians, that God has given his good news to, he's entrusted us with. He could use angels to evangelize the world. He could write it in the sky if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He trusts his message to us, uh, messed up people. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are his ambassadors. And, and some may say, well, look, I know that God's given that to me, but, man, I'm a Christian. You don't know my past. You don't know where I've been. You don't know my present. You don't know what I'm struggling with right now. And can I say this? Sure I do. I may not know the specifics, but can I tell you this? This room is filled with a lot of stories of grace and grace is messy. All of us have problems. We, we may look good. We may have a suit and tie, but we're all messed up. We are. We all have our issues and our hang-ups and our struggles and the sins that, that uh, try to beset us. We all have them. And what's encouraging to me about Jonah is that Jonah is not a man who's a knucklehead. God fixes him, and then God uses him, although God desires to do that. Jonah is a man who's a knucklehead, and he keeps being a knucklehead, and God uses him while he's being a knucklehead. In the middle of his idiocracy, God uses him and takes him and does something with him. And that's not unique to Jonah. Peter's a hothead. Jacob's a manipulator. 
Jonah's strong-willed. Moses is meek. They all have their temperamental flaws. They all have their hang-ups. You may be D all of the above. You may have all of them. I don't know. But I can tell you this. God has a man who's messed up, and he wants to use him for his glory, and that's the case with you. You, me, us, we are messed up, but God wants to use you for his glory. He wants to use you for his glory, like you, the person sitting in your seat right now. The person on your driver's license, pictured right there, the the one listed on your birth certificate. That's who God wants to use. And he wants to do something with your life. And he takes this man and gives us an example that he's going to, a flawed individual, and he's going to do something with his life. And can I say, God does not, he wants you to be used as you are. He doesn't want to make you another Pastor Mark. He doesn't want to make you your spouse and praise the Lord for that. We're all thankful. He doesn't want a, a little cookie cutter bunch of people in Harvest Baptist Church. He wants to use you despite your flaws, despite your hangups, despite your issues. He wants to use you for his glory. And we find this man, and we'll begin to see it week after week, that he, I, I promise you, he is, he's crazy. He's absolutely crazy sometimes. But God uses him. And then God does this. He gives this mission to Jonah. He takes this man and he says, man that's messed up really, I'm going to give you a mission. And the mission is this. God wants to reach broken and lost people. And he tells Jonah, Jonah, here's the mission. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. Now Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. This is Israel's bitter enemy. This estimated that this city was one million people, which by ancient standards is massive. The last verse of Jonah, Jonah 4.11, tells us that there's 120,000 infants in Nineveh, kids that can't discern between their right hand and their left hand. So this is, a, by ancient standards, a massive city with, with a lot of people. It's located kind of 600 miles northeast. That's east to me. That's east to you. Northeast in what would be modern-day kind of northern Iraq. If you spent any time in the Middle East, you're familiar with it. Uh, Nineveh really is right where the, the city of Mosul now is. So here is this city that's massive that is the capital of the arch enemy of Israel. And God says this city that is resplendent with palaces and terraces and, and barracks and libraries and temples and, and all of this, this capital city, I want you to go there. And Nineveh is known and the Assyrians are known historically for primarily one thing. The Assyrians were known for being aggressive, cruel people. Assyrians are pit bulls, and Nineveh is the biggest dog cage you can find. And that's where God tells Jonah, I want you to go. I want you to give them my message. God says to Jonah, Jonah, get up and go. I want to reach them. I want to reach these broken and lost people. But Jonah has zero compassion on the people of Nineveh. Jonah is actually worse than zero compassion. Jonah has anger towards them. Jonah has resentment towards them. Jonah has disdain for them. It's more than a lack of compassion. Can you see maybe how God would want to use that to do surgery on your heart? It's easy for us to look at Jonah and be like, Jonah, shame on you. God told you to go. We're about to see in the next verse that you run. You have no compassion for these people, but it begs the question of us, do we have compassion on people? It's easy to point the finger at him and say, shame on you. You should. But do we? 
Here are people that God wants to use, that he wants to share his news with. And Jonah says, no, I don't have any compassion. But that mission of reaching broken and lost people, it may be in different verbiage for us today with the gospel of Jesus, but it hasn't changed. God still wants to reach broken and lost people. He still wants to use you despite your flaws and your inadequacies, and he wants you to share that with them. As a Christian, we are commanded to go evangelize, to share the gospel with people, to give it to them. So it, it starts to ask us our own set of questions that who do you have compassion for? Who's on your prayer list right now that you're praying would come to know the Lord Jesus? Who are you inviting to church? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you planning on reaching? Your neighbor? Your coworker? Your family? The homeless? 10,000 Indian immigrants in Pittsburgh? It's, it's, it's not that we have lack of options. It's, it's a question of do I have compassion? Do I want to go? Maybe it would be time for some of us to ask God, God, help me understand why I don't have compassion. God, why is it that I don't, I don't even think about sharing the gospel with him? I don't even think about witnessing to that, that person that just checked me out or that waitress or my neighbor. I don't, I don't even think about inviting God. Why is that? If that is the case, that's a problem. God has a man that he wants to use, and he has a lot of people in this room that he wants to use, and his mission is to go reach broken and lost people. Jesus is a man who came not for the well, but what? For the sick. He was moved with compassion on them when he saw them, and he was even ostracized for hanging out with those people. We should be people that, that see this need, and this is really, if there's, if there's one major lesson that we're going to hear over and over and over again through this series, and I'll put all my cards on the table right now, very early. There's one major lesson that we're going to get from this. It's that we should be burdened for the lost, and that burden and compassion should move us to action. It should, it should require and necessitate of us that we do something with that. You say, man, I've I talk to people all the time, I want to do something, I just don't know where to start. I just don't know how, I feel timid, I don't know how to share, I don't know what to do. We're going to do our best over the next five or so weeks to make that easy on you. We're going to do our best to give you a lot of just little ways that you can contribute and that you can be missional, that you can evangelize, that you can share the gospel. Even this Sunday, there's a, there's a way. You can sign up for August the 12th. It's our Faith at Works Day. I'm hoping and praying that on August the 12th, we have a faith that works for the ages that we have hundreds of people from our church that come and say, you know what, we are going to go bonkers in the community and we're going to go sh share the love of Jesus and we're going to evangelize. And there'll be a lot of options for you. If you feel comfortable actually talking and evangelizing face-to-face, -face, great. If you feel comfortable more doing a project and just showing the love of Jesus through your works, that's fine. If you feel comfortable going and, and giving things away or visiting people in an ICU waiting room, or there'll be a million options for you to, to, to take. But I hope that we will do something with that, that we will step up and say, you know what, I want to do that. That next Sunday, and you'll begin to hear more about this over the next couple of weeks, but August the 13th is going to be uh, our Neighbor Sunday. We're, we're going to have a, a big day where we just say, you know what, let's invite as many people as we can. We'll have a service, we'll have a cookout afterwards and have a good time with them, but let's, let's go invite them. The people that God's been putting on your heart that you've been thinking about and you've just been kind of him hawing around and you just haven't done it yet, you just haven't got there yet, let's do it. 
let's, let's be like Jonah, this mission of here's some broken and some lost people that I want to go reach. Jonah, get up and go. Go reach them. Let's do that. I pray that every member of our church will decide right now that over the next few weeks, you know what? I want to get involved in that. I want to I get up and go. I want to be missional. I want to evangelize. I want to share the gospel. I want to reach broken and lost people because the heart of God hasn't changed. He still wants to do that, and the call is there for you. One preacher said it this way, the only alternative to evangelism is disobedience. That's it. You, you either you do it or you disobey because it's expected of a Christian that we would share the gospel with people. And God says, Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh. I want to reach those broken and lost people. And he says, here's the message that I want you to deliver. And the message is this. God desires to show you grace, but he'll give you judgment if need be. Look at the end of verse number two. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you're not careful, you'll think of this only in the negative, and you'll see through the book that Jonah clearly understands this is not just in the negative. This is, Jonah, cry against them, for their wickedness has come up before me, that Nineveh is, is great in political power, Nineveh is great in their cultural sophistication, but Nineveh is great in their wickedness. And this wickedness has caught God's attention and his, his holiness demands that he does something and he is doing something. He's asking a man to go and to cry against him and to preach against the city and crying against does not mean, and this is why Jonah runs because he knows this. Crying against does not mean Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, Nineveh, game over. Judgment's coming, fire and brimstone. You have no choice, ha, ha, ha. Crying against it, Jonah knows, means that he's going to go and say, God has taken notice of your wickedness, and judgment is coming if you don't repent. But he knows if they do repent, there's going to be grace and mercy given to them. And really, the message that he's given them is, God's clock is ticking. Judgment is coming. Your wickedness is great, but there's a mercy. There's an option for you. And that's the choice for the Ninevites, judgment or mercy. Really, at the end of the day, this is good news for the Ninevites. This is you have an option on the table to respond to God in biblical obedience if you will. And honestly, it's the same good news that we share today. Mercy provided by God that we do not deserve. Grace that we do not deserve, but the alternative is judgment. That's the gospel. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that we are sinners, we are wicked, we are wrong, and we stand in our own sin guilty. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. That there is, there's wickedness and there's a judgment if nothing is done, but there's grace and mercy from God by Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection that we can take advantage of, that God loved the world. And he gave his son so that if we believe in him, we should not perish but have everlasting life. That is still the good news. That's the message that Jonah really is to deliver to these people that we are to deliver today. And likely, Jonah would have delivered a message to reprobate Israel. If Israel was doing wrong, he probably would have delivered the message. But to go to Nineveh, to those people, no. Jonah sees Nineveh as a symbol of wrath and judgment upon Israel. God sees Nineveh as a symbol of great mercy that he wants to show to the Gentiles. Their mindsets are miles apart. 
And God desires to give these people a message and to have an example of the mercy and grace that he wants to show the people that do not deserve it. He wants to go reach broken and lost people with a message of judgment and mercy. There's mercy and grace for us from Jesus Christ, but judgment is the alternative if we do not trust in his salvation. And we see this in verse number three, the mistake. The mistake that Jonah made that we all make sometimes, God's word is overruled by man's feelings. The Bible says in verse number three that Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. So Tarshish is his, it's his goal. It's where he wants to get. From the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof, and he went down into it to go with him unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah's getting to Tarshish via Joppa. Joppa is the modern-day Jaffa. It's right near Tel Aviv in Israel. It's a port city. And he wants to take this ship to Tarshish. We're not exactly sure where Tarshish is. Most scholars are in, a, in agreement that it is probably in Spain. Literally, we know this. Tarshish is west. Nineveh is east. Jonah is going the opposite direction. If Tarshish is in Spain, Tarshish is literally the edge of the known world. Jonah could not have gotten any further away than that. Jonah's intention is, I want to not just not go, I want to get as far away from that place as humanly possible and sit over here so that there's no chance that I ever get to them to give them the good news. And Jonah trusts his feelings and his emotions and his, how he is on the inside and he lets that trump God's word and God's instruction to him. Now, if I haven't stepped on your toes already today, let me try to get everybody. Okay? <laughs> the primary reason Jonah runs from God. What really drove Jonah? Think about it. What really drove Jonah? Why does he want to get away? If you don't know the whole book, your natural inclination may be fear that he feared these cruel, aggressive, pit bull people. But you'll find in chapter four, that that's not the reason why. What really drove Jonah? It's a shocking answer, it's patriotism. Jonah knows that it's not in Israel's best interest to have a strengthened Assyria. Jonah knows that if these people repent and trust in God, you can, you can bet that God's going to bless them. They're going to get mercy and grace. And a stabilized Nineveh, a stabilized Assyria means, inevitably, a defeated Israel. Jonah hates Nineveh because he loves Israel. It's that simple. Jonah is a man that his patriotism actually clashes with God's word and God's will. Now, this is not unique to Jonah. I have heard people, Christian people, good people, say things like, you know what? Nuke them all. Haven't you? And a rock, just scrape them off the, off the face of the earth. Is that really biblical? Think about it for a minute. That may strengthen our national borders. I don't know if it would or wouldn't. Wouldn't it be more biblical to send a missionary to them all? To evangelize them all? To share God's good news with them so that their hearts are changed all? 
Even, even over the past 12 months, there's been a refugee crisis that's taken place. If you're not careful, you'll let patriotism trump what you should be doing biblically. Yeah, it's very convenient to ignore a refugee crisis. I don't know that it's Christ-like, though. Think about it for a minute. There are times in our lives where we want the national interests of our country to trump maybe where the gospel would go. Well, let them kill each other. Seriously? Like, is that our heart? That we just want to quarantine a, a group of people to die in judgment and go to hell? That's Jonah. He's a man who hates those people who doesn't want them to affect the borders of Israel, and he won't go. He won't give them the news. He won't give them the message. And patriotism really is driving him. Now, to be clear, I'm for patriotism. Play the Star Spangled Banner, and I will stand as tall as anybody with my hand over my heart and a tear in my eye. Put a soldier in front of me, I will thank them profusely for their service and teach my children to do the same. See your glory flying, and, and I get this kind of swell of pride inside of me. But I understand that Jesus isn't American. The stars and stripes don't fly in heaven. I understand that there may be times where national interests are trumped by what the Bible tells me to do. And this is the case with Jonah. That he's driven to run from these people and not to give them the good news because he doesn't like Nineveh. He doesn't want them to have the, the message. And to be fair, there's no Israelite that would have had some sort of neutral emotional reaction to this message. All of the Israelites would have been in the same boat as, as Jonah in this. But Jonah begins to let his, his sociology and his ethnicity influence what he's going to do with the gospel rather than letting the gospel and the word of the Lord influence those. Jonah's a man who flees from God. He flees from obedience. He flees from service to the Lord. He doesn't like none of us, so he's not going. And more than fleeing, if you catch it in the middle of verse 3, the Bible says that he paid a fare to board this ship. Literally, Jonah made an investment in running from God which is always the case. You choose to disobey, there's, there are no free rides on the devil's playground. You're going to make an investment every time you do. Running from God, and we'll see it next week, it is a costly business. And Jonah's a man who decides that I'm going to trust my feelings, I'm going to trust my emotions, I'm going to let them drive me, rather than God's word. Which you have to look at the man and say, shame on him, but... If we're honest, is there something that God is telling us to do that we've tucked our tail and we're running from? Is there something in your life that you know God has told you to do or to not do? You know his word. It's clear to you. You have it, but you choose to disobey. You choose to do your own thing, to take the reins of supreme rule from his hands and to govern your own life. It's real easy to look at this story and say, man, that dude is a knucklehead. It's a little bit tougher when we start to apply it to ourselves because honestly, Jonah is us. Jonah's a man who trusts his feelings over God's word and we do the same thing in our own lives over and over and over again. You say, then what do I do? You wake up and you respond to God in biblical obedience. 
You wake up and you say, I know what God's Word says for me, so I'm going to do it. And I could give you a litany of things that God's Word says for you to do. I can tell you, without a doubt, what the will of God is for your life. This is, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, even your sanctification. I can promise you that you being sanctified and transformed into the image of Jesus is God's will for your life if you're a Christian. Is that happening? You looking more like him? Even outside of the Bible, there may be something specifically. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. He didn't tell everyone else to do that. That was specific to Jonah. There may be something God's been pressing on your heart, and he's been, he's been knocking at your door. He's been gripping your heart, and, and he's been telling you, respond, respond, respond. And no one, there may not be a single soul that knows it. Your spouse may not know it. Your kids may not know it. No one may know it but you and God. But you know God's been telling you, do it. Respond. Obey. Let his word rule you. Let this govern your life. Let him have his way. Can I tell you, this is something God's word clashes with Jonah and it goes against his grain. This, it will do the same with you. If you read your Bible week after week, month after month, and nothing shines a light in your life that needs to be changed, and nothing goes against your grain, and nothing, there's nothing that you are supposed to do that you don't really feel like doing, there's a problem. I don't know what Bible you're reading. There's a God, and his word will oftentimes counter what you feel is intuitive. And it'll tell you to do something that's outside of your comfort zone that you don't feel like, that you don't like. But the, the options are choosing God or choosing self. I'm going to obey or disobey. And Jonah's a man who trusts his own feelings. He trusts his own instincts and he decides, I'm running from God. Now, in these three verses, we see in a nutshell the book of Jonah. And we'll begin to unpack this further next week. We'll begin to understand that God's not done with Jonah, and he's going he's to give him a wake-up call, and he's going to get his attention. But we see this man who's he's messed up. He's messed up. But God wants to use him for his glory. We see that he's given this mission to go and to reach people and to share good news with them. And the message of judgment and mercy, that this is what you, you need to respond to the mercy and grace of God. If you don't, there's judgment coming. You find a bad example that a man runs from it. And I hope that we can take the bad example of this man and the irony of him and that we can say, you know what, I'm not going to be Jonah I'm going to respond in biblical obedience. I'm going to follow God. I'm going, I'm going to evangelize. I'm, I'm going to sink my teeth into this. I'm going to get outside my comfort zone. I hope that we can learn from his life and his lesson. And we'll continue to see lesson after lesson as the story unfolds and what he does. But I hope that today we can respond to God in biblical obedience and decide that if he says it, I'll let him win. I give up, I give in right now. We're going to have eight weeks of Jonah. I decide up front, you know what, Lord? If you confront me, um, no questions asked, white flag, I surrender. I'm going to let you rule. I'm going to let you have control. I'm going to let your word govern me. I pray that that's your heart.